We're uh, winding up our series, Guard Your Heart, that verse from Proverbs that reminds us how we protect our heart. And, and again, don't think of the heart as we do in, in our culture as the seat of our emotions. In the Bible, the heart is the mind and our will, where we make decisions, where we think. And one of the ways we protect or guard our heart is by breaking the habits that tend to break or destroy our own relationships. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the issue of anger. Anger says, you owe me. You know, when we've been hurt, we tend to lash out and make demands at the offender as if that offender really owes us something. And from what I can see, anger seems to be, well, growing out of control in our culture today. Less than two weeks ago, we witnessed the horrible consequence of uncontrolled anger and hatred when a gunman massacred 11 innocent Jewish worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue. How tragic. In June, it was a gunman that opened up in the newsroom at the Capital Gazette newspaper, Killing Five. In May, it was a gunman that struck down 10 at the Santa Fe, Texas High School. Friday, it was a gunman that took out two lives at a yoga studio. Such anger and hatred defy human understanding, defy what it should be as human beings. Last Sunday, we talked about guilt. If anger says, you owe me, guilt says, I owe you. If I've wronged you, at minimum, I owe you an apology. If I've wronged God, at minimum, I owe him a repentant heart and a change of my behavior. Today, we're going to take a look at another subject. Greed and envy, which say, I owe me. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. Greed and envy also are incredibly dangerous and damaging to our relationships. We must tenaciously guard our hearts against such. You see, greed and envy create in us the inability to love anyone else. Because when greed and envy take over our hearts, we only have love for ourselves. Everything belongs to us. My possessions, my choices, my decisions, my preferences, you name it, life has to go my way or no way. That's what greed and envy will do for us. And it doesn't take much thought to understand why this is a relationship breaker. If you're in a relationship and everything has to go your way, that relationship isn't going to last very long. And because we have access so much to the things of our culture, and because we are bombarded by enticing advertisements all the time, we get the wants. Have you noticed? Uh, all you have to do is see something really, well, I don't know if I can live without it kind of thing on TV or in the newspaper or in the magazine. You think, oh, I really want that. This is about the time of the year when manufacturers start ramping up their advertising for the Christmas season. And I've watched with my grandkids when they've been over at the house and the TV's on and they'll see a commercial on for just gazillions of different kinds of toys that are on the market. And, and inevitably they're saying, I want that. I want that. I want that. And I say, write it down. Put it on your list. People, I don't have enough paper in the house for the list that that would be. And I'm telling you, it's not just the kids. We adults are just as bad. If you don't have, you want it. If you have, you want even more. 
And even if it isn't broken, we toss it aside to have the newer and better Watson. We need to guard our hearts because we're in danger of being controlled by our greed and our envy. Now, now just exactly what does that mean, to be controlled by greed and envy? We're going to take a look at that particular thought for just a few moments. This big green monster, as so often is depicted when we use the terms greed and envy. Greed and envy are siblings, to be sure, but they are not identical twins. Here's the distinction. Greed is an excessive desire for more of the material than is needed or deserved. Envy is far more insidious. It is the resentful desire for something possessed by another, but not necessarily a material thing. It can be anything. May I suggest that the verbs envy and covet are the identical twins. Now, we don't use the word covet very often. Maybe, maybe, maybe you never use the word covet, but we recognize it. We recognize it readily as the heartbeat of the 10th commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, this is what we read. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And you say, okay, I, I, I know the commandment, but what exactly does covet mean? The word itself comes from the Hebrew root word for desire. And in itself, it's not a bad thing. God gave us the capacity to desire certain things in life. This command does not condemn the desire to have a husband or a wife or to own a car or a house or friends or even have a donkey. What this 10th commandment forbids is the passionate longing for a house not like our neighbor's, but the craving for our neighbor's house coupled with the resentment that the neighbor has it and we don't. You, you understand the difference? If you said, boy, I like my neighbor's house. I wish I had one like it. Nothing wrong with that. When you say, that neighbor, he doesn't deserve that house. That house should be mine, not his, and I resent him for it, and I would like that house to be my house. That's covet. Because what that does is it's an attitude that begins to build until we take action on our resentment and bitterness. We see the very same thought in the words of the wise King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4.4. Then I observed that most people are motivated to success by their envy of their neighbors. Same concept, just using the word envy here. But this too is meaningless, like a chasing after the wind. Envy for what others have that we do not have breeds actions that once again run contrary to God's word. When we watch others prosper, but we can't get ahead no matter how hard we try, we stoop to actions that will ruin our hearts. There is something insidious, folks, about a sin that is mental and therefore invisible to others around us. It is perhaps deadlier than the preceding nine commandments before the tenth for that very reason. I mean, you can do in your mind what you would never think of doing in front of other people. That, however, is why the last commandment is so utterly important. What starts in the mind ultimately translates into action and behavior. Murder, adultery, theft, and falsehoods begin here and then move into action. They are the outgrowth of a covetous or envious attitude. Thoughts precede actions. And when you covet what your neighbor owns, it may lead you to sin against your neighbor so that you can have what is his or hers. 
Keeping the Ten Commandments then determines whether or not we will keep the other nine. God will never make coveting okay, folks, because an envious attitude stands in direct contrast to the second half of the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because you can't covet what your neighbor has and love your neighbor as yourself at the same time. It just isn't possible. The famous French author Guy de Maupassant, and my apologies to people who speak French, <laughs> was a celebrated writer of short stories known the world over. He had it all. Wealth, fame, and prestige, and yet at the height of his fame, he attempted suicide and subsequently went insane and died at the age of 42. He wrote his own epitaph shortly before entering an asylum. This is what he said. I have coveted everything and taken pleasure in nothing. You see, that's exactly what coveting, envy, greed will do. Guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Jesus told this parable to emphasize this very point. In Luke chapter 12, verse 13, this is, this is how the story begins. This is the setting. Someone in the crowd said to him, this, in the crowd Jesus was teaching, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you two? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. There it is. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. I don't know if you've noticed it, but money and possessions have separated more families than perhaps any other cause in life. Siblings become estranged over inheritances all the time. One perhaps feels cheated by a parent who who didn't leave him or her what he or she hoped they'd get in the inheritance. Or maybe they're resentful of what their other siblings got. I mean, I even read of one sibling who cleaned out the house while the rest of the relatives were at the funeral. That's cold, folks. And most families never recover. Greed gives birth to deceit and mistrust. Greed for material things is also a major source of stress in marriage. The late Larry Burkett wrote that 95, 95% of the couples he's counseled were in financial trouble because of the overspending, sorry guys, of the husband. I hate to say that. 95%. Men and women splurge on different things, but the guys are attracted to bigger things, usually with a lot more horsepower. And that's what gets us into trouble. And why do we obsess over things we can't keep anyway? Are, are we willing to destroy relationships that can last beyond a lifetime for those things that break or wear out or become outdated even before we finish paying them off? 
You see, the young man in the crowd was more concerned about the physical inheritance at stake than the spiritual riches available to him in Jesus Christ. Ironic, isn't it? He stood in the presence of the one who could give him an eternal inheritance. He stood in the presence of God himself, and the only question he could think to ask was, will you do something about my brother? Make him share the inheritance with me. Jesus' response is also ironic. Uh, Man, what, what do I have to do about this? Who's made me a judge and arbiter between the two of you? Now, the irony of that is that Jesus is the judge We will someday stand before him as judge. And a right relationship with Jesus in that moment would have changed that young man and it ultimately would have changed his relationship with his brother. You see, Jesus can do the same for us too. He can change our whole attitude about life in this world and get us ready for the life to come. Don't miss this subtle point. Don't miss this. You can either have a relationship with Jesus now as your Savior, or you can have a relationship with him as your judge at the end of life. Which one do you want? Which one seems like it is best for your life's journey? We must not allow our greed for material things to drive our relationships, physical or spiritual. Jesus had a warning in this passage. The NIV translates it, watch out. The NLT translates it, Beware! Exclamation point. The word is a military term. Describing a soldier on guard duty. Keep your eyes open. Stay at your post. Don't lay down. Don't sleep. Be focused. Be on guard. You see, Jesus is saying, you got to keep greed from creeping into your heart. Because a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. The key word here again is greed. Jesus didn't say guard against material things or guard against savings or retirement accounts or guard against being rich. He said guard against greed. There's a difference, folks. The Romans had a saying, money is like seawater. The more a man drinks of it, the thirstier he becomes. Greed is an insatiable desire for more. Not, not long ago, there was, there was a survey done on people about contentment. How much more would they have to earn in order to be content? And people from all different walks of life were interviewed. People who were poor and people who were incredibly wealthy. Do you know what the average was? Everybody said about twice as much as what I have right now. Didn't matter where you made 30000 or 300000 Everybody said, well, if I had twice as much as what I have right now, I think I could be content. Don't miss the point of the parable. The farmer was rich, but that is not condemned. In Scripture, it is always the attitude toward money, not the amount of money that's at stake. The farmer was also successful. That's not condemned either. God gives us the capacity to succeed in life. Matter of fact, folks, I'm going to suggest you when God gives you talents and abilities, if you squander those, if you waste those, if you don't use those, you dishonor God. God wants us to be successful. He's given us the ability to succeed. So that honors him when we do. And thirdly, the farmer was ambitious. But that's not condemned either. As a matter of fact, the opposite of of ambition is condemned in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 10.18 says, If a man's lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. Or in Proverbs 6, we're reminded of this truth from nature. Go to the ant, you sluggard. 
Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. The ant is always ready. You see, God expects us to plan for the future, to do our best, but not to be controlled by the things, but rather to control those things. Ambition is good. Greed is not. The farmer's problem then was that he was intoxicated with the thought of having more and more and lost all common sense in the process. You see, I've seen that happen. You have too. It's easy to lose our reasoning ability when we are consumed by greed and envy. Common sense just sort of slips out the door. So how do we break this pattern of greed and envy? Well, let's just take a look at some things that... um, that, well, are destructive for our relationship, uh, you know, we've seen. Now, how do we get away from those destructive things? Here's, let me give you just three real quick this morning. First one is learn to put others first. You want, you want to protect your heart. You want to guard your heart against greed and envy. Then learn to put others first. In other words, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to use it. Use it for others. The farmer never saw beyond himself. In this brief parable, the rich man uses the pronoun I or my 11 times. And the one time he does use the pronoun you, he's talking to himself. You take it easy. All right? So the whole concept of the parable is this inward self-focus. The pronoun my is called a possessive pronoun. And there's a reason for that. My crops, my grains, my barns, my soul. He's absolutely possessed with everything that is his. Hey, have you ever wondered why the, the, the farmer here didn't just add another, another barn? In the parable, Jesus says he tore down his barns and built bigger ones. I mean, it would make sense, wouldn't it, just to keep the barns you got and then put up another silo or another barn or another storage bin for the surplus? No, what we don't understand is that in, the, in this day and time, the size of your barn denoted wealth. You got a shed, you're pretty poor. Got a big barn, wow, look at the wealth. So this guy didn't keep the barns he had, he tore them down and built bigger ones because he not only wanted to be rich, he wanted to look rich. And notice too, that what this crop was, was surplus. Now, most farmers, they bring in the harvest, they fill up their grain bins, and then by, uh, by the next year, those are all emptied. They've sold the grain. They've used the grain. Not this guy. His barns were still full of previous crops. He had more than he could use in a lifetime. They were in danger of rotting before he probably got them used. But no, no, he wasn't about to share his sur- What if he had used his surplus to help other people? You see, this was just above and beyond his great wealth. He didn't have room for the surplus. He could have said, you know, I've got more than I can spend in a lifetime. Let me just give this year's crop. Let me just use this year's crop to be a blessing to others. No, no. He decided to hoard it instead. Do you know that in in the U.S., we now have 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space? Do, do, do you realize how much that is? That means that every man, woman, and child in America has seven square feet of storage space available to us all at the same time. 
We could all, if you could put all the storage units' roofs together, we could all stand under, every man, woman, and child in America could all stand under the roof of storage units. Now, I, I know, I'm sorry, if, if you've got a storage unit and you've got stuff in a storage unit, I'm not picking on anybody because there's a lot of good reasons to have one. I mean, you may be in between moves and you've got to temporarily store some things. and you've got, or, or you may have plans that you're getting ready to use, but it's not right. I get all that. I understand all that. But do you know that according to the statistics, 50% of, of the storage units that are used are used for things that people don't want, can't use, don't have room for in their house, but they don't want to get rid of either. They don't want to use. They don't, they don't want to... It's surplus. It's surplus. And by the way, our houses today, on average, are twice the size of what they were 50 years ago. We're all guilty. I'm guilty. You're guilty. We're all guilty of looking at things and trying, boy, I don't know if I want to let go of that just yet. Imagine if we just used our surplus to help people. What a difference that would make. Love God and love others and put them first by using what you have to make a difference. Okay, here's the second thing. Learn to be generous. What's mine is mine and I'm going to share it. One of the overriding themes in scripture is generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 10 and 11 says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. We talked about it earlier, the, the sin of coveting being a mental sin. Well, generosity also begins in the mind and heart. Uh, it is not natural. It is, it is not natural to do more than is asked of us. <laughs> and when, when Jesus said to the people in the Sermon on the Mount, go the extra mile, you know. Somebody says, go with me one, go with them two. That's not natural. We don't naturally do that. It's not natural for us to share what we've worked so hard for with somebody else who may have a need. Especially if we're not sure that the need is, well, all that deserving. It's hard for us to do it. It's not natural. Starts in the brain, starts in the mind, starts in our thoughts. And we make a conscious decision to share with those in need. But I'm telling you, there is a joy and there is an internal reward that comes when we are generous. That's the way God wired us. That's the way God is. God finds great joy in being generous with his family. Author Susan Orman has this to say about generosity. It says, true generosity is an offering given freely. And out of pure love, no strings attached, no expectations. Time and love are the most valuable possessions you can share. Being generous just makes you feel better. And we're entering that season of the year where generosity takes center stage. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. I'm going to ask you to write down on your bulletin uh, a couple, uh, an idea for generosity this week, okay? I don't care. This is only for your eyes. I don't, and nobody else needs to see this. And you say, why do I need to write it down on my bulletin? Because by the time you get out of this building, you forget I even preached. <laughs> but if you write it down on your bulletin, all right, you can take this home with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to do this this week. So what I'm asking you to do is just to step it up a little bit. Do something generous this week for somebody else. Something maybe you hadn't thought about doing, but, but you could do. Um, maybe it's an extra, extra tip for a hardworking server when you're out to eat. Or maybe it's buying some groceries for a shut-in who can't get out. Or maybe you're just going to bake cookies for a friend for the, for the fun of baking cookies as an encouragement for them. 
Uh, Maybe it's babysitting for a weary single parent to give her or him a gift card uh, to to go do something refreshing. The list is endless. I'm just telling you, use your creativity. Do what you can do. Just this week, this week, do something that nobody's asking you to do. But do it generously from the heart. And next Sunday, tell me about what, what it felt like. I, I'm not saying, you know, you, I'm not asking you to break. I, I, don't know, I know you don't want to do that. But I want to I hear about the joy of what happened this week when you tried being generous. Here's the last thing. Learn how to give back to God. Mine is mine, and I'm going to give it. What's mine is mine. And I'm going to give it. Ever wonder why God commanded us to give back to him? And he said, why, sure, it, it helps in the spread of the gospel. Yes, it does that. But even if it didn't help in the spread of the gospel, I am convinced that God would ask us to give back to him, to command us to give back to him. This principle. And, and the reason is, it builds trust. We learn how to trust God in the process. And the second thing is, it prevents greed. In giving back to God, we learn that we don't have to get all we can and then can all we get and then lock up the can. We learn that we can do without for the sake of a greater cause and in giving back to God, we find a peace and contentment that you cannot find in greed or envy. There will be a joy when we do something for other people with generosity, when we give back to God and we say, I'm I'm just going to watch God keep his promise. Can I ask you this? Have you ever seen a happy, greedy person? How, How often do greedy, envious people smile? But people who are generous, aren't they fun to be around? And and you can just tell that they're doing stuff out of great joy and they're getting as much joy out of what they're doing as you may be in receiving the joy from them. But that's not the end of the story by any means. Let me take you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 6 and 8. What leads up to that we read a minute ago. It says, remember that the person who plants a few seeds will have a small crop. The one who plants many seeds will have a large crop. You should give each, you should each give then as you have decided. Not with regret or out of a sense of duty. For God loves the one who gives gladly. And God is able to give you more than you need. So that you will always have more, have all that you need for yourselves and more than enough. For every good cause. Well, in other words, you give gladly from the heart and God will gladly give you his blessing. Once again, the biblical illustration is from farming. Every elementary child can understand this principle. If you plant a hundred seeds, you're going to get a greater crop than if you plant only ten seeds. If God blesses when we give back to him and God removes his blessing when we are greedy and envious, which approach do you suppose would be more advantageous to your spiritual life and to your earthly life? Or if it is true that we reap what we sow then why are we such pitiful planters? If God can be trusted to keep his promise, and he can, then let us gladly give back to him with generosity and joy. Yeah, I've never seen God fail. And he says, I'll pour out a blessing. That doesn't mean if you put a dollar in the offering plate, you'll go find, home and find a $2 bill in your, in your mailbox. That's, I'm, that's not what the promise is. But I've learned this, that God's blessings... God's blessings through the years are always greater than than what's in my wallet. And so when God says, trust me, I'm a better giver than you are. 
You learn the principle of generosity. You learn the principle of trusting me. And I'll take care of you. You'll have all you need. And you'll have even more for every good cause. Just a couple of weeks ago, I shared a picture of a walnut china hutch that my great-great-grandfather built back in the 1800s. I wish I knew the, uh, the time period for sure. Uh, my my great-great-grandfather uh, thought he owned it. Now, I'm hoping that my daughters or my grandkids will treasure it enough to keep it. But my great-great-grandfather thought he owned that. He built, after all, he built it with his hands. But he, he really didn't. He just used it for a few years and then it passed on to my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother, then my grandfather, then my uncle, all thought they owned it, but, but they didn't. They just used it for a while. It's been in my possession ever since it was passed on to me and I used to think I owned it. I've come to the understanding I don't own that China Hutch. I, I'm just getting to enjoy it for the time in my life before it passes through my hands into the hands of another. Really, folks, truly, folks, we don't own anything in this world. We are just using what God has graciously let us use. Do not become attached to the things of this world. Be attached only to God himself. You see, giving back to God puts everything in proper perspective. We Americans strive to be independently wealthy, but independent of what? Can you earn enough money that you'll never have a worry or be cautious again? Can you earn enough money to protect your family from injury or illness or sickness? Can you save enough money to guarantee you won't lose everything that you have? Can you amass enough money to prevent cancer, debilitating accidents, dementia, or cardiac failure? Don't misunderstand me. It's important. It's spiritual to plan ahead and to do our best, but not to be consumed by accumulating. Here again, the conclusion of the parable. But God said to him, to the, to the farmer, you fool, this very night your life will be de demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. The word fool means no mind. We might use the word brainless. No capacity to reason or think. Thoughtless, without common sense. This is God's commentary on the greedy, envious person. So guard your heart. Guard your heart. Make sure that the only one who has your heart is the Lord God himself. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org/messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.